This is Samuel's Persiflage, episode number three, the February 2006 edition. Samuel's Persiflage, episode number two. Samuel Gordon-Stewart here. Great to be with you again on this wonderful February for 2006. Today on the show, we have Danny O'Brien from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He'll be chatting with us a bit about Google Desktop, uh, Microsoft Error Reporting, and various things about your rights online. There's a lot of interesting things in that discussion. We've also got a lot of feedback to go through. If you have any, of course, you can send it through to podcast at samuelgordonstuart.com. I'm always happy to receive your feedback. And for some reason, there's just been a a heap of multimedia feedback, so we will get to that. Uh, The 19th of February was, of course, John Kerr's birthday. You might recall we talked about John Kerr in the first episode. I caught up with John on his birthday, and I've recorded that conversation for your benefit. There's uh, a few very unusual news stories that we'll go through as well. So uh, I hope you can stick with us. This is Samuel's Persiflage. The latest version of Google Desktop has received a fair bit of criticism lately for a new feature that seems to uh, copy a lot of your data over to Google and allow them to store it for 30 days. Joining me from the Electronic Frontier Foundation is the Activism Coordinator, Danny O'Brien. Danny, welcome to the program. Hello, hi. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you very much. All right. I've got your uh, press release in front of me here, uh, which I'll read some of. Uh, Now, this is from the 9th of February. Uh, It says that Google today announced a new feature of its Google desktop software that greatly increases the risk to consumer privacy. If a consumer chooses to use it, the new Search Across Computers feature will store copies of the user's Word documents, PDFs, spreadsheets, and other text-based documents on Google's own server to enable searching from any one of the user's computers. So what security risks does this pose to a user? Well, I think the largest one is um, uh, that um, Google has uh, a, um, access to this data on their servers. Right. It's encrypted, but, uh, but Google has, uh, has the key as well as you do. Mm. Uh, and um, the security problem that that provides isn't really one we imagine Google will go rifling through your content, but, but, but that um, a government or um, a civil action can obtain that data without having to go through the strict constitutional safeguards that, um, that you, you would normally go through if someone was trying to access, say, your personal correspondence or um, information or possessions that you'd have in your ha- in your home. Of course, this is this is mainly true for the United States. I'm talking about here, mm. but, but but most of most of the uh, the 
uh, I hate to say this, but I can't think of a better term at the moment. The sort of Western world, most of it runs on similar laws, so the systems... Right, really right. Most, most jurisdictions make a difference between um, um, things that you, you have in, in your own possession and things that you've passed on to, to other people to um, keep for you. Mm. Um, and generally speaking, the, um, the access to those is a, is a, is a lot easier, um, partly because... Um, People don't want you simply handing something to your friend and then uh, and then claiming that they, they can't get it. Um, so um, so the problem that this causes with Google is that um, because it's handing over all your data, um, there's really no differentiation there between things that are very private, things that are slightly private, and things that that um, that you wouldn't wouldn't mind going out in public. Right. Um, and. Um, uh, we've always believed that you should draw very uh, strong lines um, in uh, new technology along the same lines that we've had um, um, to protect our civil liberties in the um, in the real world. Mm. And the problem here is is the traditional way of doing this with with your own possessions when you're you're um, trying to keep hold of them is is, is to encrypt data so yeah. that other people don't access it. And that's what worries us the most about this, this Google plan, is that um, it would have been very easy for them to uh, have done this so that they didn't have access, that the encryption would have just gone under a key that only you could have had. Because the theory, right, is that it's just you who's going to be searching these computers. And they didn't do that. And that, mm. I think, shows well, that um, they weren't thinking of the privacy aspect. Yeah. I was going to bring this one up a little bit later on, but uh, I noticed on Slashdot the other day, um, the BBC is reporting that the British government is working with Microsoft in order to gain backdoor access to hard drives encrypted by the forthcoming Windows Vista file system. This sort of runs along the same lines to some extent in that the British government want access to your encrypted files. Well, uh, just just to, to, to be fair to the British government and, you know, um, that's not just because of my accent. Uh, this was a suggestion that was made by um, uh, a very, um, um, a very thoughtful security consultant, Ross Anderson, who knows a lot about um, uh, the trusted computing initiative that, mm. um, that will appear in a lot of people's computers, probably as a result of um, uh, Vista or the operating system that comes after that. Um, I think what Ross Anderson was suggesting was that, that uh, under trusted computing, it's so easy for everyone to have um, um, data protected um, mm. from anyone, including uh, law enforcement, that for the British government to be consistent, they would have to demand some sort of backdoor. Right. So Trusted, com trusted computing is a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, at the same time as it lets you protect your data um, very effectively, it also... Um, creates all kinds of possibilities for third parties to um, control your computer. Yeah, that, that, that was my concern because I don't mind the uh, law enforcement officers having access if they've got the appropriate subpoenas and so on and so forth. But um, obviously there's the fact that if that backdoor is built in, someone's going to work out how to exploit it eventually. Exactly. I, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't um, spoken to, to, to Ross Anderson, but I, I somewhat suspect that this was a... This was a, um, a flight of fancy, to, rather to point out the problems that the um, UK government was going to have in pursuing their policies, rather than a serious suggestion that Microsoft should do this. Right, right. 
Um, well, going back to Google Desktop, uh, is there any way to turn turn off the search across computers feature, or is it turned, turned on by, by default? default? It's turned off by default. Okay. So um, uh, there's the, the, you wouldn't have this problem unless you turned it on. Right. But um, of course, in the when you do turn it on, it doesn't explain to you in detail that um, uh, um, this makes you much more vulnerable to. Um, to uh, law enforcement searches and, um, and fishing expeditions. So um, that's, that's, that was our primary concern. That's interesting because uh, Google Talk, uh, Google's instant messaging client, which they just recently started putting into the Gmail interface itself, um, when that's first enabled, it actually does tell you that you can go off the record and Google will no longer try and keep a record of any of your conversations with the person you're going off the record with. They do point out, though, that anyone using a third-party client, uh, such as Game, to uh, connect to Google Talk might still be keeping copies. So in that regard, they actually are informing people about the security consequences. But So why have they decided not to with Google Desktop? My feeling is that they just hadn't considered this. I mean, uh, when um, law and technology intersect like this, um, there's, there's very few people who um, can really appreciate the, the, the ramifications. Right. I mean, this, this, unlike um, off, uh, off the record, um, this isn't just a technical issue. Mm. This is a question of law. Yeah. And, you know, take it from me, the subset of people that understand both of those rather complex worlds is, is, is it's kind of small. Uh, yes. I only have a very, very basic understanding of what I kind of really need to know at the time, so I'm probably not the best person to um, to decide uh, what is and what, what isn't legal, so in that regard. Uh, other, other Google News, obviously, um, recently they gave in to the Chinese government by blocking certain, um, certain keywords in Google search, uh, I noticed that the, uh, who is it, I don't know if I want to try and pronounce this, uh, Lu Zhenggrong, Supervisor of Internet Affairs for the Chinese State Council, uh, stated that the state control of Internet access is based on Western models. The major thrust of the Chinese effort to regulate content on the web was aimed at preventing the spread of pornography and or other content harmful to teenagers and children. He said that its concerns in this area differ minimally from those in developed countries. That doesn't quite seem to make sense with what was blocked, though, does it? Well, you know, it's a good question, right? Because um, uh, it's true that what China does varies um, really in degree um, mm. rather than technique. Um, of course, there's, there, there are, it's, it's a much greater violation of people's human rights to um, to block and filter um, um, uh, the political commentary yep. and um, and particular search terms. But um, um, the process by which um, stuff is taken off the net in Western countries is somewhat similar. There is one key difference um, yeah. in the um, in, in the West uh, and and Google. To its credit, um, um, follows this quite quite closely. Um, it's possible to find out what's being removed um, mm. if anything is taken down off the Google search index um, in the United States, for instance, um, because of um, the uh, 
the digital, digital Millennium Copyright Act. Yeah. Um, Google will take it off because that's what they're legally obliged to do. Um, but they'll also link to Chilling Effect, which is a separate third-party website that um, will give you a, um, a copy of um, the takedown notice that uh, Google received. Mm. So one of the one of the greatest problems with um, with the, the Great Firewall of China um, is that it's almost impossible to find out what they're blocking, mm. and um, and that means that not only um, uh, people in the U.S. kept in the dark, but also the Chinese people themselves kept in the dark about what the government is doing. Mm. I, I noticed that the EFF has. Uh, said that uh, internet companies in authoritarian regimes such as China uh, should consider taking five courses of action, uh, including innovating around censorship and offering encrypted connections to their web services by default. Would, wouldn't this create issues with the Chinese government, though? Wouldn't they become very apprehensive about the internet yeah, overall? Um, well, when we were drafting those, those, those five um, suggestions, we, we tried to come up with um, techniques and approaches that if a company has decided to engage in China, and we don't really support that, we, we, our preference would be that the, they, they didn't comply with um, um, Chinese requirements okay. that would violate um, human rights. But if you're going to, obviously it, do, it doesn't help to, um, to do things that would... Um, would put you at odds with that government. Mm. Um, um, using uh, opportunistic encryption, using um, um, uh, when uh, you go to a site rather than going to HTTP, colon, double flash, Google, um, just having the opportunity to type HTTPS and, yes. then, uh, and then the, U the URL is something that's hard for the, um, the Chinese government to object to or stop because mm -hmm. so much of the financial infrastructure does that. And, of course, all web browser clients um, um, have this built in. Yep. So we felt that this was like a small thing that's technically possible to do on, um, on, on the company's side and quite hard for the Chinese government to object to or block. Right. Um, so, so what did you mean by innovating around censorship? Um, well, this is something that was aimed both at the government and um, the corporations. Uh, one of the things that we found most disappointing about Google going into China is Google is full of very smart people, as is Microsoft and as is Yahoo. And we felt that they could provide a much better product for the Chinese people if rather than simply complying um, with China, they tried to um, work out ways of getting around the censorship that, and blocking that China was um, throwing at their, um, at their services. Right. Um, and, um, and we really feel that like um, uh, governments um, have a sort of uh, obligation to do this kind of thing, to make mm -hmm. the internet more free. I think that's, that's something that I think that the public voting for them would agree would be something that they, could, they should do. And I think companies have um, a real financial incentive to do that. I think that's the best business decision as well. Right. Okay. Um, I suppose one last topic, uh, one that I often get asked about uh, when I'm working in IT, uh, those error reports that, uh, say, Microsoft Office or Firefox or even OpenOffice will generate when they crash and ask you if you'd like to send them off to the company. Right. 
What sort of privacy concerns are there in those error reports? Does it contain your, your personal documents that you were working on at the time? That's a really, really good question. Um, I think it really depends on um, the particular um, piece of software. Mm. I think that if we were going to hand out advice to the people who wrote those programs, I think that we'd say to them um, that they should only send what's known as a stack trace, right. which is really just a description of where the program was when it crashed and exactly what it was doing at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, as it is, it, it's really up to the, the programmers. Um, I, I kind of suspect that they wouldn't be sending vast chunks of your document, right. um, but um, uh, it's very easy for private data to slip out like that. Mm. And I hope they'd have a, a, what's known as a data retention policy, which yeah. means that once they'd seen the crash and they'd thought about what, what it meant for their software, um, they deleted that data as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. I suppose I was thinking about this overnight and what I would sort of suggest there is that maybe during the the pre-release testing it might be suitable to send off the document as well because it could very well be something that you were doing in that document. Uh, You might have highlighted a certain length of text in that document and then tried to do something with that and that has crashed it. So in that case it might be helpful but once it gets out into out in the wild it's released properly by that stage they really should have most of those bugs ironed out and they really don't need to send off as much data yeah the um the other thing that they could do would be to um just give you a preview of what they're sending Mm. um the chances are that that if there is private data in there it will just be there in in sort of textual form yeah so they could just um in the same way as google only sends the text that it sees when it sends it on Google Desktop. Perhaps they could give you a little preview and show you what they're sending. That's not a bad idea for Google Desktop either. Maybe we'll suggest that to them. Hmm. Okay, well, uh, how can people find out more about the Electronic Frontier Foundation? You can go to our website, one of the um, oldest websites around and one of the most linked to, which is at www.efs.org. Okay, and obviously they'll find all this information, they'll find... Uh, more information. Uh, what, what's some of the other things you've been discussing lately? Oh goodness! Well, I, <laughs> the list goes on. I mean, I, the, the biggest thing you'll see when you go to our website right now is that we're um, we're suing AT and T um, for their part in the um, National Security Agency wiretapping right. in, in the U.S. Um, but, but we're involved in everything. We're involved in, in uh, um, the current WIPO discussions. Um, we've got. Um, um, We've been, as ever, discussing sort of um, the issues of copyright online. Um, a good place to start, I always think, is if you go to um, eff.org/deeplinked. Right. Our, um, our uh, organization's blog, mm-hmm. and we're already we're always percolating through interesting stuff there. So. Hmm. I uh, actually found some of the uh, information about the recent Sony rootkit debacle uh, quite fascinating. Right, right, right. We've just uh, we've just gone gone into a settlement with Sony BMG, which should hopefully make up for some of the damage that was caused then. Mm. All right, Danny. Well, thank you very much for that. It's been a pleasure talking with you. No problem at all. Okay. All right. That's Danny O'Brien, the activism coordinator for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Samuel's Burst of Lars the feedback. Send your emails to podcast at samuelgordonstewart.com.
Yes, it's that time of the podcast again when we go and have a look at your feedback podcast at samuelgordonstuart.com is the address if you'd like to send me some. And I know I'm going to receive an email about the very echoey telephone line that we had with Danny there. Well, we've identified the problem. It was a cabling fault, so we have fixed that. And I can assure you that the future telephone interviews will sound much better. Anyway, on to the feedback. Jen writes, Hey Samuel, just listening to episode 2 now. Much improved compared to episode 1, thanks to the change of theme tune alone. The first one was enough to make my ears bleed, but this one is much better. You have a great voice for radio, by the way. Well, thank you, Jen. I appreciate that, and I'm glad you like the new intro. I was uh, That first one certainly... Uh, was a bit of a disaster overall, especially it seemed in the download statistics that a lot of people just wanted to turn off in that during the intro. So thank you for that. Uh, Michael writes, Hey buddy, I had some fun with this. Enjoy. He's sent through a remix of the original intro. So what we'll do, we'll play that now. Thank you very much for that, Michael. you think of that? That was pretty good, wasn't it? I like that. Ken sends us an email. Ken asks, what was Wayne going to say before you went to the John Kerr jingle? I think before I answer that, I'll just play the uh, offending segment so that we can work out what Ken is talking about. Uh, well, John Kerr, of course, now working at uh, 2UE. And you... But not as often as he once no, was. No, down to two days a week now mm-hmm. rather than five. But uh, you've brought in a little present for us. You've got oh, one yes. of his, his jingles from 2CA. Yes, uh, they had a jingle package recorded in the uh, in the early 60s. And uh, it's um, the, the, the actual thing that we'll hear was a package that was recorded for a lot of disc jockeys at the time. Um, you're familiar with John Vertigan from... Um, oh, oh, we've not uh, only got tell, dogs. Tell, tell you what we might do. We might we'll play, take a break. Yeah, we'll play that and we'll see if we can sort out what's going on. Sounds like someone's at the front door. Alrighty, well I'm glad you asked that question, Ken, because I was wondering the same thing myself. I had uh, lunch with Wayne Mack just a few days after we recorded that interview, and I asked him the same question. It turns out that what he was going to say was that that particular jingle was used by a number of presenters. It was pretty much a generic jingle where they just dropped in the names. And if you listen very carefully you will notice uh, that the voices do sound a bit different when they're singing uh, It's John Kerr uh, compared to the rest of it. So that's what uh, that's what Wayne was going to say. He had a few names, which I had as well. They're in his book, I know, because I saw them there and I can't find them. I've been looking through it. There's just too many pages to find the information in there. So I'm sure if I looked properly, I'll find it and... You know, I'm sure as soon as I finish recording this, I'm going to find it. So, 
It's just one of those things, I guess. Anyway, if you do want me to double-check those names, I can email Wayne and, um, and ask him, I suppose. Let me know, Ken, and we'll see what we can do. Uh, James sends us an email. Hi, Samuel and listeners. Wow, persiflage number two was fantastic. A real improvement on the first. I still like the first persiflage for its gorilla-type audio. However, number two was extremely professional. He then goes on and replies to John Boy's comments from the uh, last podcast. Who cares if it's Charles or Edward? Well, actually, it was George, James. Samuel raised a good point. The Royals are a source of amusement for some, and John Boy, don't be too hard on Samuel because he does not know the intricate details of a lineage going back hundreds of years. Who really cares? He was just illustrating, light-heartedly, the nonsense they trouble themselves with. James also goes on to say, uh, Wayne Mack was very interesting, and I'm looking forward to reading his book, Bring In Persiflage Number 3. And of course, if you want to read Wayne Mack's book, you can uh, go to waynemack.com. The, all the information is there. And of course, a very extensive interview with him back in Persiflage episode number two. Atari sends us an email. Hello, Samuel. I am a huge fan of yours and have been really enjoying your podcasts. I listen to them while I work and have learned a great deal about the history of radio in Canberra, a topic I never knew I needed to know more about, but there you go. I was disappointed, however, to find that in episode two you had replaced your unique homespun jingle with some professional production music, because your persiflage sits in my iTunes list underneath one of my favourite albums, it automatically begins to play after the album finishes, and I have grown very fond of the opening music. Yesterday, I was surprised to hear my six-year-old daughter wandering through the house singing it to herself. Anyway, I look forward to the next episode. Well, thank you for that, Atari. Uh, Well, if you do want to hear the old intro, you can either go back to episode one, or you can, in fact, hear the full unedited and, uh, well, basically the raw version of it without me talking over the top of it. It's uh, somewhere buried on my website, and I will put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Chuck Berry, not the Chuck that we know from various uh, songs, various rock and roll songs, although it could be, just doesn't quite sound like him. Chuck uh, writes, Hi Samuel, I have finished this song. It's called It's Just Not Normal. I chose that title from the header on your blog. I hope you enjoy it. Regards, Chuck Berry. Well, we might as well have a listen and see what Chuck sent us. He has his own blood. It is his will, a place where folk come to discover his skills, to analyze his dreams, see the song of the week, to post their own thoughts and get a sneak peek into the inner workings of AM radio and some useless information nobody will know. You can see how many steps he's taken this week. He has a range of skivvies that don't come cheap. Strange. Oh, it's just 
not normal But you will be as you say Thank you very much for that, Chuck. That was uh, pretty good, I thought. Anyway, uh, that's the feedback for this episode. If you'd like to send me some feedback, you can podcast at samuelgordonstuart.com is the address, or alternatively, you can leave a comment uh, attached to the show notes on the website. However, if you do that, you do need to register on my blog. So you can choose podcast at samuelgordonstuart is probably easier. But you decide what you want to do, uh, and whatever you do decide to do, I look forward to hearing from you, and with any luck, we'll be able to get your comments on the air here on Samuel's Persiflage. You're listening to Samuel's Persiflage. Nineteenth of February was John Kerr's sixty-fourth birthday. I caught up with John on that particular day to wish him a happy birthday, and here is our conversation. Good morning, Samuel. Good morning, John. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. Thank you for the email and for the photograph of your little dog. Yes, that was taken on my birthday back in June when um, she got some cake as well because she shares my birthday. <laughs> okay. Mm. Were born on exactly the same day as you? No, um, well, we only knew that she was born in June, so we put her on my birthday. Oh, I thought, well, that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Why not? I have some good news for you. Yeah, well, uh, you have to keep your voice up, Samuel. Sorry. Uh, uh, what, what, what's the news? Uh, you're back on air in Canberra. Uh, you went off air down here for a couple of hours, but you're on again. Uh, when did we come back on? Uh, just before 3 o'clock, I think. Yeah, with uh, there's there's some problem with the network stations tonight with Canberra, uh, Brisbane, Mwilumba, Great Lakes FM, uh, Albury. I think.
think they've all been ringing us. Poor old Robin's been driven mad, really, with people ringing up and saying, what's happened to the program? Uh, I don't know what's gone wrong. It's uh, I, Obviously, something went wrong with a satellite. I would imagine something to do with the uh, the electrical storms, which, which are around us, knocked mm. us off the air for a while. Oh, well, the good news is that you're back on and everything seems to be going well anyway. Well, that's good news. That's very good news. Mm, I, I was uh, starting to wonder if I would have to stay on hold all night to listen to you, actually, and all these jolly people <laughs> who keep ringing you. <laughs> well, Sammy, well, I, I could, it's very nice that you uh, made contact from Canberra uh, with us this morning. It's lovely. I, I enjoy the email. Enjoy your thoughts. Uh, I don't think we've talked since I've come back, uh, have we? Uh, we have once. Oh, yes. That's yeah, right. yeah, I've, yeah, just, I've just been a bit busy and tired, and so yeah. I haven't really rung enough. Oh, well, that's okay. That's okay. You've been talking to charity? Yes. Or emailing with charity? Yes, I have. Yeah, that's nice. Almost nightly, actually. Oh, good. Hmm. Yes, you two have become good buddies, haven't you? We have, yes. All thanks to you. <laughs> Well, look, it's uh, nice of you to uh, call, and thank you for the good wishes, Samuel, and uh, we'll be in touch again real soon, I'm sure. Yes, and you have a nice day. Thank you very much. I'm going to, I can assure you. Well, the last few weeks has brought us some rather unusual stories, so uh, I'll share a few with you right now. The reputation that elephants never forget has been given a chilling new twist. A generation of pachyderms may be taking revenge on humans for the breakdown of elephant society. New Scientist has reported that elephants appear to be attacking settlements as vengeance for years of abuse by humans. In Uganda, elephant numbers have never been lower or food more plentiful, yet there are reports of the creatures blocking roads and trampling through villages, apparently without cause or motivation. Scientists suspect that poaching in the 1970s and 80s marked many of the animals with the equivalent of post-traumatic stress disorder, perhaps caused by being orphaned or witnessing the death of family members. Many herds lost their matriarch and had to make do with inexperienced teenage mothers. Combined with a lack of older bulls, this appears to have created a generation of teenage delinquent elephants. Uh, Now, this one's just incredibly odd. Scientists have successfully bred the world's first fully fluorescent pigs. Fully fluorescent pigs. Looking at a photo here, it's got uh, one of these fluorescent pigs next to a, a standard pig. The standard pig looks fine, looks pink as usual. This fluorescent pig, well, I don't know. Can they prove that they haven't just run a highlighter over the thing? Because it really does look like they've just got out a bunch of highlighters and scribbled on it to some extent. According to the uh, project's lead professor, uh, Wu Xin Chi, even their hearts and internal organs are green. For some strange reason, they seem to be excited that uh, there are plenty of fluorescent green pigs elsewhere, but ours are the only ones in the world that are green from inside out. Oh dear, it's a bit of a worry, that one. A new scientist study that indicates your subconscious mind is a better decision maker than you are. From the article, the research suggests the conscious mind should be trusted only with simple decisions such as selecting a brand of oven glove. 
sleeping on a big decision such as buying a car or house is more likely to produce a result people remain happy with than consciously weighing up the pros and cons of the problem, the researchers say. Thinking hard about a complex decision that rests on multiple factors appears to bamboozle the conscious mind so that people only consider a subset of information which they weigh inappropriately, resulting in an unsatisfactory choice. In contrast, the unconscious mind appears to be able to ponder over all the information and produce a decision that most people remain satisfied with. If my dreams are anything to go by... I'm going to turn into an electrified cat any minute now. Ah, oh dear, oh dear. Microsoft are in the news once again for all the wrong reasons. According to a story over at WashingtonPost.com, the latest definitions file for Microsoft's anti-spyware beta flags Symantec's Norton antivirus products as a password-stealing trojan and prompts users to delete portions of the program. Users who follow the instructions hose their installation of Norton, requiring delicate Windows registry edits and a complete removal slash reinstall of Norton. Microsoft's support forum is quickly filling up with complaints about this program, about this problem rather, many from businesses that have been pretty hard hit. This should be a cautionary tale about deploying beta products in production environments. I'd have to agree with that statement. I mean... There are very few beta products that should be deployed in a production environment. Beta products are, by definition, there for testing purposes and will contain bugs, and this just happens to be a pretty nasty one that uh, has caused a lot of concern for a lot of businesses. I mean, I've been to a few places where Microsoft anti-spyware has been running, and I don't know if they've been running Norton or not, but if they have, then I would suggest that they're in trouble. Now, from all the reports I've heard, I've heard quite a few mixed reports about Microsoft anti-spyware ranging from brilliant to not so great. Personally, I don't use it. I personally use uh, Spybot Search and Destroy from SaferNetworking.org and AdAware from Lavasoft.com. I'd use them in tandem. I have Spybot running automatically every Friday uh, and... Generally, if there is any outbreak of spyware for whatever reason, this does seem to cure it. It works for me, and uh, for those of you who like to use the Internet Explorer, Spybot will integrate into Internet Explorer to help uh, help protect your computer. Anyway, that's the unusual news stories. If you do spot an unusual news story that you think I might be interested in, podcast at samuelgordonstewart.com is the address you can email it to. Appears to be the end. I can't believe it, we're already there. Can you believe that? We're already at the end of episode 3. Episode 3, it only seems like the other day I was starting the first episode. Anyway, not to worry, we'll be back next month with another episode of Samuel's Persiflage. If you'd like to send me an email, you can. Podcast at samuelgordonstuart.com is the email address. Now, something I do need to inform you of before we go. 
at the end of the December episode, I know that's a long way off yet, but at the end of the December episode, there will be a listener poll as to uh, which episode or which interview uh, you like the most from the year, and the result of that will be two interviews. Will be the uh, will make it into the best of 2005-2006 episode, which will be just around the new year. So that's all coming up. But as I said, that's it for this episode of Samuel's Persiflage. I'll be back next month with the March edition. Until then, take care, cheerio, and see you later and anything else I can think of. Ta-da!